Big Mo. Momentum is a big deal, isn't it? Y'all ever watch sporting events and they talk about momentum? I was reading the write-up about Cayuga yesterday and it looked like, uh, was it Bront? Is that how you say it? Bront? Six minutes to go, uh, minute 55 to go, they're up by six. They thought they had all the momentum. It didn't work. Momentum is a huge deal, and they talk about it all the time in sports, but we're going to talk about it the next couple of weeks as it relates to our spiritual lives. There is a possibility of having spiritual momentum. Two weeks ago, we came off of one of the greatest um, days in the history of, of new life when we gave our one-day offering for the Building a Great Life commitment. Um, we brought in that day $41,000 to pay off our loan on the new land that we have over here in between us and the, and the RV park. 34 families gave $41,000. We've never given that much in an entire month, much less in one day. The largest amount we'd ever collected in a four-week span was around $20,000 in our regular offerings. So when you were challenged... To talk to God and see what God wanted you to do, you responded in such a way that you totally blew away the record for giving at New Life. The average family gave $1,205 of those 34 families. It came out to $1,205 per family. On top of that, 31 families made pledges over and above the tithe for the next three years. That means the average given by those 31 families over and above the tithe for the next 36 months is $9,354. Only God could persuade a group of people to give like that. And by the way, when you join New Life, if you come through our 101 class, you're told at the end of the class that that the Bible teaches you're supposed to tithe. And so we expect church members to tithe. We expect regular attenders to tithe. That's what God says. And when people made a commitment to the church, they're saying that I'm going to be involved in everything that, that God is doing here at the church, and that includes tithing. Now, when, when people made this 36-month commitment... Um, all they were saying is, God, we're going to give a greater percentage. I am really having trouble here. James wore it last week. He broke it. All you're saying is, I'm going to give a greater percentage than the tithe for the next three years. There's nowhere in the Bible that it's forbidden, that you're forbidden to do that. Now, God has gotten all kinds of glory for what what has happened. I've gotten uh, all kinds of testimonies, both on email, and some of you have told me personally, some of you have uh, handed me in the written testimonies. And over the next few weeks, you're going to hear some of those things about what God has taught people through building a great life. But today, man, this is just not working. I don't know what we're going to do. But today, I want to focus in on spiritual momentum. How do you maintain spiritual momentum? Now, regardless of whether you were part of building a great life, this, this message is for you. Because, here's the deal. Here's a scientific principle. You can't start anything from where you're not. Right? Scientific truth. You have to start where you are. Some of you, you are just beginning this journey towards Christ. We call you seekers. You may not even realize that you're a seeker yet. Every person who's breathing is seeking something, and usually it's meaning in life. 
If you've gone through the 12 steps, they talk about in, in step three that, that there is a higher power. Well, we believe your higher power has a name. His name is Jesus Christ, and he wants to have a relationship with you. You may not realize it yet, but you're seeking a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we just encourage you to start wherever you are. It doesn't matter where you are. You're going to start, and, and we've got a message for you today, and it'll come back towards the end. If you're one of those people that are just starting your journey towards Christ, we, just, we encourage you. We're glad that you're here, and we want you to keep coming. Some of you um, used to be close to Christ, and you've moved away, and it's time that you came back, and we're going to talk to you today. And then there's some of you that, that really learned a lot through building a great life, and you kind of are on the top of the mountain, and we want to ask that question, even though you're on the top, how do you stay there? How do you maintain that high with God? And, and I don't know if you've realized, but life seems to be more a series of highs and lows. It doesn't seem to be one kind of steady trajectory. It seems to be a bunch of ups and downs. Anybody recognize that? Anybody relate to that? That when I look back over my life, it seems to be a bunch of ups and downs. Well, let's talk about some realities here. Do that first picture there, Ashley. Anybody know where that is? Mount Everest. How tall is Mount Everest? Tall. 29,035 feet. Over 2,700 people have stood at the top of Mount Everest. And... Since 1921, that's what we have documented since 1921. During that period, over 210 people have died attempting to stand on the top of Mount Everest. That means one in 13 dies. Now, that's actually a higher percentage. They've gotten better through the last 15 years. It used to be one in eight died, gave their lives trying to get to the top of this mountain. And uh, for that privilege of getting to the top of the mountain, you spend somewhere over $60,000, 90 days of your life, and there's a 1 in 13 chance that you will never make it back from the top of that mountain. Why would people do it? I mean, you know, there's a certain pull to uh, being in this small group of people who have done something that very few other people have, have done, but, but don't tell me people do it for the thrill of the climb because people who don't make it to the top... They feel like failures and they'll spend many of them the rest of their lives attempting to go again until they get to the top, till they can stand on the top and say that they have made it not to just the top of a mountain, but to the top of the mountain in the world. It's a big deal and it's big business for Nepal and, and Tibet and all of the places surrounding Mount Everest. It's a big economic advantage to have this mountain there. But let me ask you this question. Which one do you think is more dangerous? Getting to the top of Mount Everest or coming down from Mount Everest? Coming down. More people have died coming down from the top of the mountain than have died going up. Well, there's a spiritual principle, and here it is. You need to be very, very careful when you are coming off of high places, when you're coming off a high time. Um, there was a guy who was talking to his buddy, and he said, Hey, did you hear that John fell out of an airplane? His buddy said, oh, that's bad. And he said, well, no, he had a parachute. The other guy said, well, that's good. And, and the first guy said, well, parachute didn't open. And the second guy said, well, that's bad. And the first guy said, well, no, there was a haystack. And the other guy said, oh, well, that's good. And the first guy said, no, there was a pitchfork in the haystack. And the other guy said, oh, that's bad. And the first guy said, well, he missed the pitchfork. And the other guy said, oh, that's good. And the first guy goes, no, he missed the haystack. That's bad. That's bad. Yeah. <laughs> our attitude towards life is that the highs are sometimes so good and the lows of life are sometimes so painful that we want to do anything we can 
to hang on to the highs and we just don't want to experience the lows. We long for a piece of heaven on earth, but, but God doesn't want us to get too attached to earth because earth is not our permanent home. I honestly believe that's why God allows us to go through a significant amount of pain and suffering on this planet because this is not where we're living forever. He doesn't want us to get too attached to this planet. So suffering and pain and death remind us that just getting up and breathing every day and existing on planet Earth is not all there is to this life. There has to be something more than what we're experiencing. And if you'll search the scriptures, this is what we always try to do. We talk about our lives and then we apply it or we look at what God's word has to say and we try to apply that to our lives. And, and I just want to run through a series of, of uh, examples here of, of how life seems to be highs and lows. Let me just start with Big Mo, Moses. Um, at the time he was born, he was in Egypt and, and Egypt had a law that all of the Hebrew children, all of the male children should be killed. That's a low. Um, Moses' first crib was a little boat that they put in the Nile River to hide him from the Egyptians. That's a low. Um, he was found by Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him. That's a high. He gets to grow up in Pharaoh's court. He gets all the advantages as if he were an Egyptian. That's a high. But then when he gets older, he goes out one day and he sees that the Egyptians are mistreating the Hebrews. That's a low. He kills a Hebrew. Or he kills an Egyptian. That's a low. And when Pharaoh finds out about it, he decides, man alive, Jamie, what you do to me? I'm blaming it on James. It's not really. He kills the Egyptian. When Pharaoh finds out about it, he tries to kill Moses. That's a low. So Moses runs away and he goes to the desert. And that's a low. And you know what he does? Because in, in Egyptian society, the lowest job that you could possibly have was to be a shepherd. Guess what Moses does out in the wilderness? He becomes a shepherd. So from the highest high to the lowest low. But out there in the desert, God begins to speak to him. And God provides a wife for him. Well, that's a high. And he has children. And that's a high. And he sees a burning bush that's not being consumed. And that's a high. And then God says, I want you to go back to Egypt. And, and Moses thinks that's a really bad idea. So he thinks that's a low. And God convinces him to go. So it's a high. Do you understand what's going on here? Highs and lows. There's a series of peaks and valleys in Moses' life. And... Um, there's another guy named Daniel. Y'all heard about the lion's den? Daniel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. That's a low. But he proved to be smarter than anybody else in, in the Babylonians' kingdom. So he was elevated to a position, one of three in the nation. He was top three in the nation. That's a high. Well, then this law comes out, and they make a law that you can't pray to anyone except the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that's a low because Daniel is a praying dude. So he's caught praying. That's a low. He's thrown into a lion's den. That's a low. But the lions don't eat him. That's a high. There's a guy named Jonah. You heard about Jonah? God tells him to go to a city that he doesn't want to go to. That's a low. So he runs away. That's a low. So he gets thrown into the sea. He gets eaten by a fish. But the fish vomits him up on the ground. And I, and I got to ask you, is that a high or a low? I'm going to say that's a high because there's only two ways to get out of the fish. <laughs> I'm counting that in the high side. If you got vomited up on the, on the land. Let's, uh, let's talk about the New Testament. Fast forward to Jesus. When Jesus was at his baptism, he goes out and is baptized by John the Baptist in, in the Jordan River. And it says that this voice thunders from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Thundering voices from heaven. That's a high. 
then right after that, you know what happens? He's led out into the wilderness where he's attacked for 40 days relentlessly by the devil, trying to get him, trying to discredit Jesus' ministry before he ever gets started. That's a low. But what happens right after that? He begins to teach and preach and heal people of diseases and, and teach about the kingdom of God and people start turning their lives around to God. And that's a high. But then he's crucified and that's a low. But what happens on Sunday Easter? He is resurrected and that's a high. Do you understand the Bible is teaching us that you're going to have peaks and valleys in this land? But here's what I know. It is because Jesus was able to stay close to God through the highs and the low times of life. It is through the highs and the lows that we're going to learn to be more like Jesus. And I want to show you a promise from God's word about the high times and the low times that you're going to face. And it's from Romans 8, 28. And we know that all that happens, that's highs and lows. Everything that happens to you. Bible does not say that everything that happens to you is going to be a high. It does not say that everything that happens to you is going to be a low. It does not say that God causes everything that happens to you. There is sin and suffering in this world. There is an enemy of God who is released in this world. In the next life, he won't be. But the Bible says this promise, through the highs and the lows... We know that all that happens to us is working for our good if we love God and are fitting into His plans. Here's a big deal. A lot of people say, man, I love God. How come my life sucks? Well, it's if you're fitting into God's plans. We're going to talk more about this next week. God never comes to a group of people and says, okay, Wes, tell me what you want to do for me today. Hey, Nate, why don't you tell me what's going on your schedule? Let's look at your schedule and I'll bless your schedule, Nathan. God shows up and he says, I'm going to do something. You need to be fitting into my plans. You see the key there? God says through the highs and lows, if you love me and you're fitting your life into my plans, I will make you look more like Jesus. Look what he says. For from the very beginning, God decided that those who came to him should become like his son. Now, why is it a big deal for us to become like Jesus Christ? Because your character is the only thing you can take with you to heaven. This body that we have, this physical body, it doesn't go to heaven. The only thing we get to take to heaven with us is our character. And so God wants to use the highs and lows of life to help us begin to bear the family resemblance, the Christian resemblance. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to look at... One of the first letters, Um, if you've ever read Revelation, you know that in chapters 2 and 3, there's seven letters that Jesus Christ sends to seven different churches that existed back in the first uh, century. And so what this one is, is the very first letter. This is to a group of Corinthians, I mean, a group of Christians at Ephesus. And I want you to see what Jesus has to say to them. I know what you do, how you work hard and never give up. Does that sound like good stuff? Hard work, never give up? Yes or no? Okay. Okay. Just check it. I know you do not put up with false teachings of evil people. Is that good? You don't, you don't listen to false teachers? Is that a good? That's a high. Look what they do. You have tested those who say they are apostles. That means followers of Christ. They say that apostles were, were those who walked with Christ and had the most authority in the church. So he says, you have tested those who say they are apostles but really are not. And you found out they are liars. You have patience and have suffered troubles for my name and have not given up. Okay, so let's stop right there. Information was not a problem with them. Doctrine was not a problem. 
Working hard, effort, perseverance, patience, all those, woo, those are highs. Jesus Christ is saying, this church, man, you got it going on. Then look what happens. But I have this against you. This is Jesus Christ. I have this against you. What are those three words? Say them together. You have left. Say them again. Okay, let's stop right there. Let's personalize this. I want you to say, I have left. Say it. Some of you just rebellious, like, I ain't saying anything. He tells me to say. <laughs> just, just bear with me a minute. Say, I have left. All right, let's continue. You have left the love you had in the beginning. Some of you have read this in other translations. It says, you have left your first love. That's real key here. So remember where you were before you fell. Change your hearts and do what you did at first. If you do not change, I will come to you and will take away your lampstand from its place. Basically what it means is God is going to take his influence and his blessing from that church. I will remove my blessing. You know, we, we've talked, I've joked, not, not really joking, it's actually very serious, with many ministers through the years. And, and a lot of times the Holy Spirit, which is God's Spirit who moves amongst his people, a lot of times churches... The Holy Spirit can, can be grieved and leave those churches for six months or longer and nobody notices. And you think, how can a group of people who call themselves Christ followers function without the Spirit of the living God amongst them? Well, the truth is they can't. This church had everything going on except they had left their first love. Do you know what the problem was? Something we call heart drift. Have you, have you ever seen heart drift? Do you know what that, that's like when you're in a relationship? Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a spouse. There's something called heart drift where through neglect, you move further and further apart. You seen it? Maybe you're experiencing it? I thought you might like this picture. Can we put that one on the website, Wes? Um, if you hadn't seen the website where it has staff, there's no picture of me because Wes wanted a picture of hair, so he put my cat on there because it had hair. Um, anyway, this was 19 years ago. Janie and I are about to celebrate our 19th wedding anniversary in May, and this is our engagement picture back when I was young and had hair. When Janie and I... Um, got back together in August of 1990. Um, I said to her, I said, look, I'm tired of this whole dating scene. At this time, I was 25, and, and I said, I'm just tired of this thing, and I'm not going to date you without the possibility of marrying you. And she said, that's cool with me. And so we started dating, and I, I, just, I was declaring my intentions that, that you know, if, if this wasn't going anywhere, we might as well not even waste time. And so she said, that's cool. So we dated a few times. Well, she came down to see me. I was living in Austin. She was going to school at uh, Sam Houston State. So she comes to see me. And, and one of the things that I wanted to do was take her to the Riverwalk in San Antonio. Why would anybody do that? Because it's romantic. Yes. That's a hot place to go. And, and when, I, when Janie and I first got back together, I drove down to see her. And, and I hadn't seen her in over a year. And, and she came out to hug me at the car, and, and I just pulled her back, and I looked into her eyes, and, and I said, I had forgotten how beautiful your eyes were. And I just stood there looking at her. 
Then I laid a big fat kiss on her. And, and when we got back together, I kissed the girl as often as I could. When we went to San Antonio, we were walking down the river walk, and I'm like, dude, i got to kiss her. So I'd pull her behind a tree, and I'd kiss her. And we'd walk down, and there were buildings have those big columns, and I'd pull her behind a column, and I'd kiss her. And we'd go around, and I couldn't take ten steps without kissing her. I just, oh, she just made my heart go crazy. And uh, we went into this restaurant, and ironically, the restaurant was called the Naked Iguana. That's just... Why I remember that, I don't know. It was not a perverted restaurant. There were no iguanas running around in anything. Um, But we go into, and I remember sitting across from her, and she was so beautiful to me. And I kept leaning across and kissing her, and I'd get up, and I'd walk around, and I'd kiss her, and I'd lean across, we'd order, and I'd kiss her, and they'd bring water, and I'd kiss her. And finally, the waiter comes up, and he's like, are y'all newlyweds or something? And we're like, no, we're just really, really in like because we hadn't said the L word yet. And, and see, Janie's, Janie's smart, man. She knew. Anytime a woman popped out the L word with me, I was gone. L word was a cuss word to me, the love word. And the M word, marriage, oh, gosh. That was like I run out the door. And so she, we hadn't said that. We, it wasn't going to be much longer until I declared my love for her. And then she could use that L word, and, and it was okay. But, but I just remember being crazy about her. Do y'all remember that? Do you remember a time in your life when you were crazy in love, where you got the butterflies, where your heart would go pitter-pat, and where you were just giddy and you thought about them all the time? Do you remember? Some of you are like, man, that was in the Jurassic period. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? It was a long time ago. Let me give you some, some attributes of what first love looks like. First love has an insatiable, an insatiable desire to learn about the other person. Men, do you remember? She does. She knows. There was a time. When you would go out to eat, you would be so consumed with this vision of loveliness. I would sit across from Janie because I wanted to look at her. And you know what I was preoccupied with? Her. I talked to her. Ladies, remember when you used to have conversation with your man? No. You made eye contact. Sometimes you didn't even touch your food. Do you know what you were most interested in, dudes? Her. A conversation. She's the most important person in the room. Tell me about your past. Tell me about your messed up family, because we all have messed up families. Tell me about your future. Tell me about your day. Tell me about your plans and let me kiss you in between each new segment of information because you're just loveliness personified. You remember? Do relationships stay like that? Ladies are like, a couple of days. Somewhere relationships change and something happens. Here's a more recent picture of my wife and I. She still looks good, doesn't she? And, and if you could see this close-up picture, those big blue eyes. My brother told me when he first met her, he's like, dude, I bet you fell in those blue eyes and never came out. And I said, yeah, you're right. Now, I don't show you this picture to say that we've fallen out of love. We have a different type of love. But I want you to imagine a couple that does not focus on one another. What happens to that relationship? 
it falls apart. Janie and I, in this picture, we're at a ballroom dancing dinner. One of our favorite things to do is ballroom dance together. We love it. It is, it is our time to just hang out and have fun. And so we're trying, to, we're trying to join a ballroom dancing club in Tyler. That doesn't sound fun to you. I don't care. I don't care what you think. I want to focus on my wife and make her a priority. And I got to tell you some things. I love her more deeply today than I did 19 years ago. Our kissing today, you better not listen to this, son, is, is better than it was 19 years ago. Sex today is much better than it was 19 years ago. Of course, 19 years ago, we weren't married, so we weren't having sex. We didn't have sex, so didn't have far to go to get better. But, but you understand what I'm saying. Sex today is so much better. I told you not to listen, son. Janie and I look for reasons to be together to keep the fires burning, to keep the passion burning. But what happens if we neglect our relationship? Have you seen couples that, that go out to eat when, they, when they've not made their relationship a priority? When they eat, they don't pay attention to one another. He's spilling food all over himself. Which is, right, which is attractive, right, ladies? He's complaining about the price of the food, the service. She's trying to ignore him, wishing he would shut up, right? It's just no fun to be around those people. They have left their first love. And I don't know any couple that wants to be there. When I do premarital counseling, when I do weddings, nobody says my goal is to have a horrible marriage. My goal is to be one of those couples that everyone makes fun of. And by the way, hate is not the opposite of love. You know what the opposite of love is? Indifference. It's when you just don't give a rip if they live or die. That's what leaving your first love is like. You just don't care anymore. But when you have a first love, there is an insatiable desire to learn about the other person. Second, there's heavy investment in the relationship. Early on in the relationship, you want to spend time together, right? Time, no problem. I got all the time in the world. In fact, time stands still in her presence. Janie and I would talk all hours of the night. She actually was a very poor college student. I was a youth minister. She was a very poor college student, so she had to get the preloaded calling card. And she would stand at a little payphone outside her apartment. She goes, okay, I'm going to talk to you until my 10 minutes runs out. And, you know, and, and, and back then, it wouldn't even tell you. It wouldn't count down. It just cuts off. And so, you know, I'm going to tell you, love you now, in case we get cut off. And <laughs> hangs up. We... Uh, wrote letters. We would, we would talk for hours, go for walks, sit in the park, kiss. We like kissing. And, and you know, when, when you're in that intense, heavy investment thing of, of the relationship, you'll drive by where they work just so that you hope you can look through the window and see them. You know it's true. You'll make big old gushy cards, you know, and I heart you. And if you could, you'd do things in the sky that say I love you and you're just my meaning in life. And you go to the mall together. This was back when you went to the mall with your woman. Um, buy whatever you want, baby, because you're worth it. The old couple, 
You think he's going to the mall? The mall is like doing time. Hard time. The mall gives me hives. Makes me vomit. Um, I cannot stand to go to the mall. I sat at home yesterday rather than going to the mall. We were at my brother's house and my brother and I sat there and we were just totally bored. But I'd rather do that than go to the mall. But when, when there's that first love, you have that heavy investment in the relationship, you'll do it. Third thing is you have this crazy preoccupation of your heart. I want you to go back to the young love couple. When they are sitting in a restroom, restroom. There is no way to come back from that. So we're just going to move on. Dude. Restaurant. Restaurant. I don't even want to think about sitting in a restroom. When you're sitting in a restaurant with that person that you are preoccupied with, you don't have to worry about other people in the room. Your heart is full of love for that person, so you're not distracted. All of your attention, all of your devotion is to that person. And uh, the old couple, you know, they're saying, I'll say goodbye to love. Y'all don't even know that. That's, that's like the carpenters. I'll say goodbye to love. The young couple... Ain't no mountain high enough. Right? Okay. That's enough of that. Revelation 2.4 says something really profound about love. And this is what I want you to get. It does not say that you lost your first love. It does not say that you fell out of love as if you can fall into love. That's just, we'll go there another day. What it says is you have left through a series of small choices, you chose to walk away from the other person. And before long, you're so far apart that not only are there no feelings of love there, there's not even really a desire to pursue that love. And here's the thing. Even though these may not have been intentional choices, don't you dare blame your circumstances in life. Don't blame the children. Don't blame your life. You look in the mirror and you say, I left. I chose to leave. Don't blame the other person. Don't blame circumstances. You look at yourself and say, I left. Now, I know some of you here don't even have a relationship with God. And I said, you're seekers. Here's what I want to tell you. Because you can't have left if you weren't ever in a relationship with God. Here's my message for you today, if you're a seeker. It comes from Psalm 34, 8, and it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. I double-dog dare you to taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't know what that means? You just keep coming. We'll, we'll teach you about it. You want to get involved in a small group Bible study? Then, then that's where you can ask all kinds of questions. You can, say, you can interrupt me in my small group and you say, dude, I don't understand what you just said. And we talk about those things. Can't do that here. But if you want to learn more, there are places you can learn more about this God of the universe who wants to have a relationship with you. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, Jesus called himself the bread of life. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. We're going to actually talk about the, that we as a church are supposed to be serving samples of the Savior. 
Two weeks from today, we're going to start the, a new series called Doors. Now, that's for those of you who don't have a relationship, but the majority of you here know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been more on fire for, for Christ than you are today. There was a time in your life you had a hunger for God. There was a time when you could not spend enough time with God. You could not give enough of your resources to Him. It was a spiritual high. If there was a Bible study, you were going to be there. Memorizing Scripture, you're there. You could not wait to get to worship because you wanted to declare your love for God. If there was baptism bubble bath, you would be using it. Jesus Christ was the full focus of your heart and your devotion. But something happened. And that something is you left. You chose to leave. And if that's happened to you, what are you going to do? And for those of you who are close to Christ right now, what are you going to do if the temptation to leave happens? Well, we're going to look at three steps. Step number one is, comes from this passage where Jesus is saying to this church at Ephesus, remember, you have to remember. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? When you really caught on to the fact that He paid the price for your sins, when He gave His life in exchange for your life, do you remember what that was like? Many of you were so spiritually hungry that nothing could keep you from this place. No commitment was more important than worshiping and serving the living Jesus Christ. Do you remember? You were more like the young couple in love than the old, stagnant, boring couple. Do you remember the insatiable desire to know more about God? All you wanted to do was love Him and know Him. Do you remember the heavy investment you placed on your relationship with God? Do you remember the crazy preoccupation of your heart? You'd be driving down the road and you'd just start saying, Thank you, God, for what you've given me. Thank you, God, for the trees. Thank you, God, for the... There was this crazy preoccupation with your heart. Do you remember? God does. And He wants you back. God remembers each time in worship where you would lift up your hands and you would just sing praises to Him. He remembers when you would hold out your hands like it was an empty cup and you'd say, God, just fill me one more time. God remembers that. He remembers when you pursued Him like no other. When He was the object of your deepest affection. And He misses that. And let me just stop right here and say this has nothing to do with guilt. Guilt is not my motivating factor today. It has nothing to do with guilt because if truth be told, if you've ever been there and you've left, you miss that too. You want that relationship back. God wants you back. So you remember. Number two, you repent. When you remember, the next thing to do is repent. And, and you know, the, the easiest way to remember what repent is, repent is about changing your mind. All right? And, and here's, this is what it looks like. If God is that direction and the relationship you had with God, you left. If He's over there, you chose to go this way. Repent means there comes a point where I have to think in my mind, holy cow, I have left. Okay? But it's not enough just to remember you left. You've got to change your mind about the direction you're going. Turn around and face God. That's what repentance means. I'm going the wrong path. You confess it. God, I confess to you. I left. Father, forgive me because I left you. And then the third thing is, you do what you used to do. You remember, you repent, and you do what you used to do. 
And basically, that's what, this is what that means. I'm here, oh God, I left you. I turn around. And then you do the next right thing. And you're like, what's the next right thing? Well, I don't know what the next right thing is for you. Because we're all at different places in our spiritual journey. The next right thing might be making Sunday mornings a priority. The next right thing might be getting involved in a small group or, or celebrate recovery. The next right thing might be giving of your resources. It might be serving. It might be reading your Bible for two or three minutes every morning and praying that God will apply what you've just read to your life and He will direct your path because that's the promise of Scripture. If you'll seek Him, the Bible says, He will make sure that you find Him. He's not out there hiding You're so preoccupied with your life that you're missing God's life for you. So you do the next right thing. And if you don't know what that is, that means you're not talking to God. Because He'll show you what the next right thing is. Now, I want you to write this down. I didn't have this on your listening guide, but write this down. Motion will lead to emotion. Motion will lead to emotion. Here's what I mean. When you've left a relationship, whether that's with your spouse or with God, you don't feel like loving someone, right? When you've walked away, you don't feel like it. I don't feel like doing this. Well, feelings got nothing to do with commitment. So here's the principle. You cannot feel your way into a new way of acting. I'm going to stay here until I feel like worshiping. I'm going to stay here far away from my spouse until I feel like coming back into a relationship with my spouse. Can I tell you, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because you're not going to feel like it. You have an enemy who will make sure you don't feel like it. But motion, here's what I mean. It is possible to act my way into a new way of feeling. I do the first thing that I know is the right thing to do. And after I do that, I do the second thing that I know is the right thing to do. And the third thing, and and so on, day after day. And then over a period of time, I look up and I'm closer to my Savior. Or in the marriage analogy, I'm closer to my wife than I was when I started the process. And the thing that's amazing is when you do the right thing over and over, God awakens those feelings inside of you. And he renews the relationship. Does that make sense? If you're not as close to God today as you used to be, you left. You chose to leave. May not have been intentional, but you did it. And the question is, will you come back today?